Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. Romans chapter 3. Verse 9 is where we left off a couple weeks ago. Last week, if you missed Pastor Kashal Kale from Kalapur, India, I just can't tell you how much uh, I want you to go and listen to his message on the website or find the, the uh, CD. That's what they're called. <laughs> I had a, a just, it was, the word escaped me, the, the little thing that you actually put inside of a thing that plays music. Um, and yeah, I'd love for you to listen to that. Um, and, and rejoice in, in our partnership with that dear brother in, in India. As you're looking for Romans 3, if you don't have a Bible, as always, I want you to use one of the ones that's in front of you. You can keep that Bible. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you. We'd love for you to keep it and read God's Word for yourself. And if you're seeking, looking for a church or investigating the Lord, we think that this is a good place for you and one of the things that we do here is just work our way through books of the Bible primarily, and we find ourselves in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Now, this text is a summary of what has come before, starting in Romans 1, verse 18, where the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the church in Rome in the late 50s, probably A.D., is summarizing his argument that God in his righteousness has poured out his wrath on a fallen world. And Paul is making an argument that all people, whether they are Gentiles, meaning those who are not ethnically Jewish, that's probably most of us in this room, or those who were Jews, God's people in the Old Testament, who had the written law of God, so whether they were Gentiles or whether they were Jews, Paul is making the point that all people everywhere by nature are rebels, are fallen, are sinful, and rightfully under God's wrath. And in verses 9 through 20, it's really his concluding argument of that. Before we get to verse 21, which we will next week, which is the glory of the beginning of his explanation of the gospel. So I I give you that preface to recognize that maybe you're here for the first time and maybe what's kept you from church in the past is that, you know, every time it seemed like you came to a church, the pastor was preaching some fire and brimstone message and it was all about sin. Well, welcome to Crosspoint on the first Sunday of April in 2017. And I want you to know that by God's grace, he has us in this portion of scripture and, and this is good for us. What we're going to read today and what we're going to think about is really, really important because without our understanding of the state of mankind before the good news of the gospel, we we really don't, we can't understand salvation at all. And so let's let's recognize that we're, we're, we're sort of allergic to hard truth by nature as, as modern people, but this is, is good for us. So let me read Romans 3, verses 9 through 20, and then we're going to work our way back through it. I've got a bigger new Bible with, um, one of my sons looked at it today, and he said, Dad, that font is really big. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Romans 3, starting in verse 9. What then, are we... Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we as we work through this text, which is a summary of, of Paul and your indictment against fallen humanity, I pray that we would be given grace by you to see ourselves rightly, to see the state of mankind rightly, and that all of the difficult things that we will dwell on today will really posture us to more deeply glory in the good news of the gospel the beautiful diamond of salvation that stands against and is lifted up against the backdrop of the blackness of human fallenness and sin. May the diamond shine more brilliantly today as we look at the darkness of human fallenness. I pray for my friends in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus. Lord, would you use even hard words from your scriptures to be things that soften their hearts. And would, for your people that are gathered here this morning, would you encourage us? Would you cause our love for the cross and the work of your son and love for the gospel and love for one another and humility, would you cause all of those things to deepen? And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to work back through this text. And I see three truths. I'm going to categorize these in three truths. And then we're going to end with some reflections on these truths and and then we're going to come around as is our custom on the first Sunday of the month to receive the Lord's Supper together. So if you are a believer in Jesus, if you're trusting in Christ, you're welcome to come to the table this morning. And this feast, this meal that Christians have been receiving together since the resurrection of Jesus is a symbol of Jesus' work on the cross, his body that was broken for us and his blood that was spilled. We're coming together on this first Sunday of the month to remember that. And if you're a Christian, you're welcome to come to the table. But three truths that I see about sin in this passage, Paul's summary of human fallenness. The first is that sin is a tyrant. Sin is a tyrant. Look again at verses 9 through 12. Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now let's stop there and let's just handle a potential objection that you may have if you're you're a careful Bible reader, which I hope is all of us, I hope we're all growing in that, to ask questions of the text, is that it seems like in verse 9, Paul has directly contradicted what he said in verse 1 of this same chapter. So in verse 1 of Romans 3, he says, What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? In other words, what's the benefit of being God's people in the Old Testament that receive the written word of God? And he says, well, much in every way. And then he goes on in verses 1 through 8 to talk about the privileges and the responsibility of being part of God's people in the Old Testament. But now, in verse 9, he's, he asks the question essentially again, and he says, well, then are the Jews better off? In other words, is there any advantage? And he says, no. So what's, what's the apparent contradiction? Well, it's really not a contradiction. I think what's going on in verses 1 through 8 is that Paul is saying that to be part of God's people in the Old Testament, to receive God's word, came with it many graces and much responsibility. So in that sense, certainly God's people are better off. Just like it's better off to be born into a Christian home, to have Christian parents who love the Lord, to grow up in a Bible-believing church, certainly that's, that's a grace, that's a, that's a goodness of God. But in the sense of whether or not that in and of itself makes a person right with God, which is, I think, the sense of what his question is in verse 9 at the beginning of our text, is does that make a person inherently better off? He says no, because he's building this argument that all people at the end of verse 9 there are under, and just think about this imagery, are under sin. Sin is a master a tyrannical master that comes to hold people down. Now, I wish I could sing. 
I have a family full of people that they can all, everybody else in my house can sing except for me. Um, in fact, most parents like to encourage their kids. And when I was a little kid and I would sing in the back of the seat when we'd take road trips, my parents would stop and say, please, please don't sing. Like, that, that was me. But I love the opening scene of Les Mis. And they're pulling that boat. It's a, a musical that was made into a film a few years ago. And they're pulling that boat. These slaves are pulling this huge boat into port. And they're singing this song. I won't, I won't sing it for you. I'll spare you. But they're saying, look down, look down. You'll always be a slave. Look down, look down. You are standing in your grave. And that's the picture here that Paul paints for us is that sin has come and has put mankind under It's power. The Apostle John, towards the end of the New Testament, says this in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 9. He says, we know that we, speaking of Christians, are from God, and the whole world, meaning everybody else, lies in the power of the evil one. An older translation says that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. Friends, I need us, we need to get this picture that Paul paints for us in Romans 9 that sin isn't just something to be dealt with. Sin is a taskmaster that is a tyrant that is holding mankind down into, subject, into subjection. And look at the dreadful diagnosis that he gives us in The following verses 10, 11, and 12, he says, none is righteous. And here Paul is stringing together in verses 10 through about 18. He strings together about seven or eight quotations from the Old Testament, primarily from the Psalms, a few from Isaiah, and I think one from Lamentations, where Paul is really knowing his Bible in the Old Testament is using the evidence of God's word written down through the ages to be a kind of summary argument that man is righteous. He says, none are righteous, none of us. No, not one. No one, that verse 11 there, think about that. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That doesn't mean that nobody has any understanding. In fact, as biblical Christians, I think we should know and understand the the biblical doctrine of common grace. I mean, there are people that are not believers, they're not Christians, who have great understandings about a great many things, and praise God for that. God has given a kind of common grace to humanity, whereby there are people that can do amazing things. I mean, tomorrow, as Reynolds led us to pray for little Sarah Joyce, she's going to have this surgery done. I don't know whether the doctor's a Christian or not, but there have been amazing discoveries in modern medicine that allow, there are people who understand many things. But in regards, this is what Paul means here, in regards to understanding God, the world, is veiled from their understanding, and no one seeks him rightly. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Again, certainly there are people that in a sense do good, but in the sense of goodness that would merit our right standing before a holy God, Paul is leveling the playing field, and he's saying that no one, and he's just quoting Old Testament scripture, no one does good, not even one, even the person who seems to be moral, and think about, think about this, I think I've used this analogy several times in the past, even the person who seems to be moral, if they are not acknowledging the source of their goodness, the fountainhead of their goodness, then their good acts really are just idolatry because ultimately they're wanting the praise of men or just their own sort of self-satisfaction. The illustration that I've used before is think about a young man who is adopted by parents as an orphan, and he grows up with all the benefits of this family who raises him well, and they send him to an Ivy League school, and he gets a great education. He majors in finance, and then right out of college, he gets a wonderful job on Wall Street where he's this investment banker, and he makes all of this money, and he goes about doing good things with his money for underprivileged people around the world. But let's say that when this guy graduates from college after receiving all of these benefits from the source of his blessing, which is his parents, he never acknowledges his parents. In fact, when his mother tries to call him, he doesn't even answer the phone. (laughs) 
just doesn't even acknowledge them, just cuts them off. We wouldn't say that that guy's good. We would look at him, and first of all, we'd slap him and say, call, call, call your mom, first of all. But we would look at him and we would say there's a kind of self-absorption even to his goodness because it's really all about him. He's not wanting to give praise to or credit to the source of his blessing, which was his parents' kindness. Well, in an infinitely greater way, mankind, apart from acknowledging his creator and worshiping his creator, taints all of his good works. And it makes even his good works that God may use in common grace not worthy of anything as far as saving him before a holy God. Mankind is under sin. And this has left man in his natural state. The, the doctrine of, the, of sin tells us that sin hasn't just, hasn't just caused us to not be able to do good. It has spiritually killed us. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I think I've probably read this passage more than any other. This chapter, Ephesians 2 Maybe than any other passage, I think it's so important. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, I think is one of the most important paragraphs in the whole Bible. Let's just read the first three verses. Paul says, and you were dead. He's speaking to the Ephesian church here. You were dead. I think what he means there is not physically, but spiritually separated from God. Spiritually dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? Well, that's the evil one that we read about in 1 John five nineteen. the evil one under whom the whole world is under his sway, the devil, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, meaning all people, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by nature, means you're born that way by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he's addressing these Ephesians Christians, and he's not saying this is who you are, this is who you used to be, praise God. Let's not forget the gospel. But he's speaking then about all humanity, and he's saying that all humanity in its natural state is sinful, fallen, dead objects of God's right wrath. Sin is a tyrant. John Stott, in his commentary on Romans, defines sin in this way, and I think, it, I think it's a helpful sin, because when we, think, when we think of sin, we tend to think of maybe actions, and certainly we, we should think of it in that sense, but I think we need to go deeper to look at the heart of what is going on there, and this is what Stott says, sin is the revolt of the self against God. The dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, sin is self-deification. The reckless determination to occupy the throne which belongs to God alone. So do you see that? We, we tend to think of, oh, he's doing this, but there's actually something going on. There's a deeper root that gives rise to the fruit of sin, and that root is this, really, this self-worship where we are trying to put ourselves in the place of God. And I think Stott rightly captures that. That's what mankind has done, and mankind has given himself over to the tyranny of sin. So just a, a biblical truth here before we move on to the next block of verses. And the next truth I see is that, that I think clearly we can deduce from this is that really there are only, I say this often, I think it bears repeating, it, there are only two types of people really in this world. Those who are, as Paul puts it here in Romans 3, under sin and those who are not under sin, who have been freed from sin's tyranny by Jesus' work on the cross, those who are under grace or in the Lord. So there are those who are in sin, under sin, still captive, and those who are freed and redeemed and made alive. And we tend to categorize people in all sorts of other categories, but I think it's helpful for us. It's like ammonia underneath our spiritual nostrils. It wakes us up and reminds us that there are really only, there aren't black people and white people and brown people and Asian people and Scandinavian people and Californian people and Southern people. Don't give me any jokes about California. I know we're kooky, but we're really still, all of us fall into one of those two categories. There are really only two types of people in the world. 
Those who are under sin, with sin as their tyrant, and those who have been freed by Jesus' work on the cross. Sin is a dreadful tyrant. Truth number two, I'll put it up on the screen and then we'll read verses 13 through 18. Sin is pervasive. It's so pervasive. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here in verses 13 through 18. Let me read it again. He says that their throat, again, stringing together, compiling some quotes from the Old Testament. Their throat, speaking of all humanity in their natural state of sin, is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Boy, that, that's a stinging indictment. Let's just, let's just stop here and confess that we don't tend to think of ourselves in our natural state before we came to Christ in those terms. And we'll get to that in a little bit, a little bit later. But let's just, let's just think about these few verses here. First is that these verses, 13 through 18, I think really zero in on what we have called historically in the church the doctrine of total depravity. Now, what does that mean? It means that man in his natural state, born in sin, again, under the providence of God, not surprising God, but born in sin, is totally depraved. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that man is as bad as he could be, but it means that every aspect of mankind, every aspect of every person's nature, their heart, their mind, their emotions, their motivations, everything is fallen and separated from God. Man could be worse, but man in and of his natural state can do nothing to make himself right with God. This doctrine of total depravity, which I think is clearly written about in Scripture, we just read from Ephesians 2, caused Augustine, one of the early church fathers in the 5th century, so this would have been like the early 400s, it caused him to write this prayer that really set off one of the early theological controversies in the church. And he wrote this prayer, I'll put it up on the screen, he said, O God, grant what you command... And command what you will. So let's kind of stare at that prayer. Here's Augustine writing in his, really his autobiography called Confessions. He's, he's wrestling with his nature that God has rescued him. And he's looking back on his life and he's realizing that before God awakened his heart, that he was completely captive to sin. And he wrote this prayer, God, grant what you command and command what you will. Now let's look at the second part of that sentence. Command what you will. I think all of us, regardless of where we are theologically, would look at that and say, okay, God is sovereign. He's the creator. He can command what he wills. There's not much objection there. But let's look a little bit closer at the first part of Augustine's prayer. He says, grant what you command. Augustine is, I think, rightly and biblically shining light on the complete inability of man. That God can ask of us whatever he wants, but we are unable to obey it in our natural state. Why? Because we are under sin. We're held captive. We're under the captivity. We're we're slaves to sin. We are not, by our sinful nature, free. Do you see that? And so God can command what he wills, but God must also give or grant the ability to obey what he commands. Do you see that? And there was this British monk during that time named Pelagius who came to Rome around the time that Augustine wrote this prayer. And he saw really some of the immorality of the church at the time, and it angered him. And he looked at, he read Augustine's prayer, and it angered him because he felt like 
He was wrongly understanding what Augustine was saying, and he felt like Augustine's prayer was giving mankind license to just sort of stay in his sin. In other words, well, I'm just going to do, God's going to have to do what he's going to do. A kind of, you know, uh, uh, a, a kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like an antinomianism against the law, like God's going to do it or else I'm just going to stay in my sin. And he looked at this and he said, no, 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 no. Mankind in his natural state has retained an ability to obey God. It wouldn't be fair of God to command us to do something that he can't do. And it started this great theological controversy in the early church. And Pelagian became known for what is known as the Pelagian heresy where he rejected really everything that we've been saying. He rejected the truth of Ephesians 2 that says that mankind in his natural state is fallen and dead and completely unable to do anything about his fallen state. That's the argument that Paul has been building up to. And so Augustine and Pelagius got into this big theological argument and Augustine won. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll cover that more later. See, do you see the... What's going on there is that mankind is unable to do anything to make themselves right with God. That's doctrine of total depravity. We see it, I think we see it clearly a little bit later on in Romans. Romans 8, verses 7 through 8. This is what Paul says, kind of summarizing this doctrine. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh, I think that's a Pauline phrase for somebody who is not born again, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Listen to this. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, meaning people who are not yet Christians, cannot please God. Friends, do you realize what Paul is saying there? That mankind is dead under the captivity of sin, and sin is so pervasive that it has wrecked every part of man's ability to do anything to make himself right with God, and therefore man is in a predicament. He's under sin, it is his master, and it is so pervasive that it has touched every aspect of his being. He is captive. And we see this progressive pervasiveness of sin just as he goes, just think about even the body parts that he mentions. Their throat is an open grave. Just think of the imagery of the things that come out of our mouth, out of the mouth of mankind, the wickedness that is spewn. An open grave. Think about how bad decomposing flesh smells. My family has a cat. My wife and children have a cat. And every now and again, that cat will, uh, it's been a while since this cat did this, but the cat will catch like a little rodent or a squirrel, and it'll bring the thing in, play with it for a while, and then we'll like hide it or just leave it underneath the bed or, you know, a dresser or something. And I... My family can tell you this. If I were a superhero, my superpower would be smell. I have the most acute sense of smell. And I'll walk into the house and I can smell instantly if that cat, who again belongs to my wife and children, um, (laughs) has dragged in a dead animal and if that animal is decomposing under some unknown piece of furniture in our house. And that's just a little squirrel. The picture here is open graves. That's how the words of this world smell. That's the picture. People don't need help. People don't need improvement. Doesn't this impact how we should preach the gospel and how we just view mankind? People people are dead in their sins. That's the state of the world. They use their tongues to deceive, so there's honey publicly, but behind the scenes there's venom. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their path is ruin and misery and there's no fear of God before their eyes, friends. Listen, before we, before we sort of think of all people out here 
even for those of us that are Christians, let's remember that this is who we were in our natural state before God saved us. Sin is pervasive. It's a tyrant. And then finally, notice that sin is universal. Verses 19 and 20. Sin is universal. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, and I think there he's referring not just to the general law of revelation that he's spoken about in Romans 1 a little bit, like the the law that's written in the heavens that all people should be able to see just the beauty of creation that should draw them to God. I think here he's specifically talking about the Old Testament law. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. I think meaning the Old Testament Jew. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So let me, let me trace what I think Paul's argument here is. He's saying that God's privileged people, the Jews, had this law, this written revelation of God's way and God's plan and God's holiness. And it was never really intended to save, but it was intended to come and be like a light that illuminates the sin that existed even before the law came, the garden in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's fallenness and the wretchedness of mankind, mankind's fallen state happened before the law. The law then was given not as a means of salvation, but as a means of illumination to indict the world. And now God's people have been indicted by that law And as a result, knowing that God's special privileged people couldn't follow God's law, then where would that leave the rest of the world, the whole world? Paul then, I think, rightly concludes, especially after his argument in Romans 1, that all people, all people, whether Gentile or Jew, are now held accountable to God. Accountable. We've got some lawyers and a judge or two in this church and... Can you imagine standing before a courtroom, standing before the judge, being completely guilty, knowing that you're guilty, and then asking if you have anything to say for yourself and saying, well, you know, I mean, I remember one time one of the last things I did when I was in the army was this soldier in my company was getting chaptered out of the army for multiple defenses, multiple offenses. He was just not a good soldier. And I was standing before the brigade commander who was straight out of central casting. He, I think this guy was crusty, angry, tall, mean, and his breath was horrible. (laughs) And this colonel, it's like he had a cigar stitched to the side of his lip. Like he just always had a cigar. And when he'd yell at you, he would kind of bounce. And I remember one time we were on a training mission and he came by my platoon and um, he was asking me to brief my plan, and I said, well, this is, this is, this is going to happen. And he said, well, what if that doesn't happen? What's your contingency? And I said, well, sir, if this doesn't happen, then I hope. And he yelled at me, and he said, Lieutenant, hope is not a strategy in the United States Army. And I, anyway, I'm still scared of this guy. In fact, he became a general, and then later on, he became the general in charge of the Katrina uh, cleanup effort, and he was on TV and CNN a few times, like, and reporters would ask him stupid questions, and he would chew these reporters out, and I'd be like, I know where you, I I feel you, I feel you. (laughs) But we were standing before this colonel, and this kid was getting an Article 15 or whatever, getting chaptered out of the army, he's at parade rest. We're standing there. I'm just trying not to shake. And the colonel just asks the obligatory question. Do you have anything to say for yourself, soldier? (laughs) Meaning, I just got to ask you that, but don't open your mouth. And this kid, oh man. (laughs) This kid's standing at parade rest. And he breaks out of parade rest. And he says, well, sir, you know, I just want, oh, goodness. Before he could finish his sentence, 
a, a fireball of profanities and whole lots of other things came and melted our eyebrows off. Think about standing before the holy, righteous creator of the universe and offering some sort of excuse. And Paul is saying here that all of us are accountable to God. We're all accountable to God. We've all got different stories. And everybody has different situations. And on a horizontal, human sort of level, yeah, maybe your situation was worse than that person's. we, We all understand that. But Paul is not talking about horizontal comparison here. He's saying that we're standing before our creator, God, and we are asked to give an account of ourselves in our natural state Felon or church kid, terrorist or deacon, and all of us in our natural state are silent before God, accountable. Listen to what John Stott says in his summary of this, again from his commentary on Romans. He says that it is an essential part of our dignity. And I'm skipping ahead. You're you're with me. Thank you. It is an essential part of our dignity as human beings that however much we may have been affected by negative influences, we are not their helpless victims, but rather responsible for our conduct. Our first response to Paul's indictment then should be to make it as certain as, possible, as we possibly can that we have ourselves accepted this divine diagnosis of our human condition is true and that we have fled from the just judgment of God on our sins to the only refuge there is, namely Jesus Christ who died for our sins. For we have no merit to plead and no excuse to make. We too stand before God speechless and condemned. Only then... Shall we be ready to hear the great but now of verse 21, and that's next week, as Paul begins to explain how God has intervened through Christ and his cross for our salvation. Friends, sin is universal. It touches every person. All mouths are shut. Nobody has anything to say. The whole world is accountable to God. So then, a few brief reflections on this. One is if this sounds harsh to us, remember that we live in a shallow, narcissistic age. That's who we are by nature, right? I think all of our inclinations to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, even before I came to Christ, I'm not that bad. It's like that old song, I grew up in like my parents had all these Motown hits when I was a kid and there used to be these things called records and you actually had to like put them on. Uh, kids, you guys should see, go to like a museum and see and you'd put, there's this little needle and you'd play it. And I can remember my parents had this one record and it was like Motown's greatest hits and there was this song that I loved. I don't know who it was, but it was Tell Me Something Good. Tell me something good. Bam, bam. Tell me that you love me. (laughs) That's like the anthem of our narcissistic age. Just tell me something good. But you see, good news isn't good unless we understand the bad news from which the good news arises. And so some of us may think, oh, Brad, why are you making such a big deal about sin? Come on. Friends, because if Christians don't understand the glory of salvation in the face of Jesus Christ against the backdrop of the tyranny and pervasiveness and universality of sin, we will not rightly worship God. Second reflection is let's understand the nature of sin and how this should inform our worldview. I think this is really important, especially in our cultural climate now. Christians should never be shocked by the world. 
We should lament it. We should even at times be righteously indignant and angry at it. But we should never be shocked. Lament, yes. Panic, no. And we should drop the phrase, the good old days, from our vocabulary because, I think biblically, the good old days were really only and all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. <laughs> and then in Genesis 3, it goes haywire. And every, somebody's excited about that. Every culture, friends, here's the deal. Every decade, every generation has its own iteration, has its own flavor, has its own style. It's all the same barn. Since Genesis 3, it's the same barn across every race, every culture, every situation, every generation, every decade. It's the same barn. It's just painted a different color. Man has fallen in his nature. And when we, in a nostalgic way, want to go back to some age that we think was a prosperous spiritual age, we belie our misunderstanding of the severity of the world that is held under the sway of the evil one. There has always been two kingdoms. This is what Augustine said. He said that there is the city of God that he is always redeeming, always working, always calling his people that he has adopted through his sovereign grace in eternity past. He's always gathering his people. That's the city of God. And then there's the city of man that is always descending deeper and deeper into despair. And we were all citizens of the city of man in sin's tyranny until God by his sovereign grace snatched us out of the city of man and made us citizens of the city of God. And we always, during this remaining years in our life on this earth, will be kind of dual citizens with one foot longing for heaven, but another foot still remaining here in this earth. And we should have a proper biblical view of the world and the culture around us. And we should not be surprised when wicked people do wicked things. And thirdly and finally... All of this pushes us to the gospel that our only hope is that God would intervene on our behalf. Now we spent, I'm about, to, I'm about to land this plane, but we spent most of our flight talking about the bad news. And the temptation is always to just get, get, to, get to the gospel quickly. Well, next week when we look at verse 21 and all the way through chapter well, the whole rest of the book, is really the gospel. But I think sometimes we're so prone to get to the gospel so soon that we don't understand the depths of what we've been saved out of. But do you see what Paul has been doing since Romans chapter 1, verse 18, when he says that the wrath of God is barreling down on humanity, whether it's Gentiles or whether it's Jews or all people, which is his summary argument in verses 9 through 20, all people are dead in their sins, completely unable, held under the tyranny of sin. What is Paul setting us up for? He's setting us up for the gospel that will come in verse 21 where he says, but now... Now, there's a righteousness that comes apart from humanity, and it is found in Jesus Christ alone. What Paul is wanting to do through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is to graciously kick any stilt that we might be standing on so we might be inclined to look at ourselves so that finally, whether we grew up in the church or whether we are the worst possible person in the eyes of this world, all of us would finally look away from ourselves and look to God who alone can save. Paul writes this in 1 Peter 2, or Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, about sin and about what God has done for sin. He says, he himself, meaning Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed and that healing isn't the promise of some physical healing in this life, although God does and can do that. But I think ultimately he's talking about the breach of sin's tyranny. The despair of our captivity has been healed and God atones for our sin and rescues us from its tyranny. 
1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, this is what Christ did for our sin, is our tyrant, is our master, is pervasive, and is universal. This is what Christ has done for his people who were in that state. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he, he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with those scriptures. In other words, Jesus takes the penalty for sin, which was our master, and frees us from it. And then finally, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake he, listen to the interplay, listen to the plan of the Trinity in this text, for our sake, meaning Christians, those whom God has redeemed, for our sake he, meaning the Father, made him, meaning the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. So all of that imagery of the open grave of the throat and the paths of misery and ruin and the, the asp, the venom of snakes underneath our tongues, all of that, Jesus became that so that in him, meaning Christ, the one who, the only one who had no sin and died as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of his people so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's, friends, that's the good news of the gospel, and it only makes sense against the backdrop of the bad news of Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. So we come now to this table to remember what Jesus has done for sin. To remember that to be a Christian doesn't mean that we have figured it out. It doesn't mean that we decided to improve ourselves. It really doesn't owe to even our heritage to anything other than the free, sovereign, unmerited grace of God against the backdrop of our spiritual state of death. That God in His kindness made us alive and gave us a new heart so that we can turn away from sin and trust in him and follow him, not perfectly, because remember, we're still, we still have one foot in the city of man, but now we follow him in ever-increasing ways. That's called sanctification for the remainder of our days. And we come now to this table to remember how God did that by causing his perfect son to become a man, to lay down his life as a substitute on the cross, to bear his wrath, to absorb it, to extinguish it, to satisfy it, to remove it, to defeat it, to rise again over it, and now to give life to all of his people. If you're one of those people, you're welcome to come to this table and take this bread and this cup, which is a symbol of Christ's work. If you're not one of his people, then you shouldn't come to this table because we don't want you to confess something that you don't yet believe. But I would say this, that if you came into this room not yet believing, there's nothing between you and the cross. There's nothing between you and freedom from sin's tyranny except your own hard heart. And God in his kindness can give you a new heart. And if you were hearing these words and you're, and you're wondering, is that me? I think that might very well be evidence that God in his kindness, as Augustine said, is commanding what he will. He's saying to you, you must believe in me. And he's giving you what he commands, which is the gift of faith. That's why the Bible calls faith a gift. It's not something that you bring. Who buys themselves Christmas presents and puts them under? Oh, never mind, that's not a good analogy because I know a lot of y'all do that. <laughs> but in its purest form, who buys themselves a gift? If you buy it for yourself, it's not a gift. He commands what he wills. Repent and believe. Come out of sin's tyranny. Get up out of that grave, Lazarus. Stay away from that. Move away. Come, live, breathe, trust in me. 
That's what he commands. And the good news of the gospel is that he gives the ability to obey the command. That's how he saves people. Is he doing that to you right now, friend? You look away from yourself. You don't look inside. You look outside. You look away from yourself finally. And you, for the first time, believe and trust in Jesus because he alone has atoned for sin. Do that even now. And come to this table. And feast on this meal with God's people. Ushers, if you'd come and be prepared to serve us. Let me pray as they're getting ready. Father, this is not a clinical discussion. This is not just some academic thought. I mean, sin is a tyrant. It, it wrecks people. This is, so, this is so personal for all of us. All of our lives have been, all of our lives have been ravaged. Every, everyone in here, even, even the most pristine life in a human sense has been ravaged by the evil master of sin's tyranny, by the wicked one who wants to steal and kill and destroy. Lord, this is not, we're not playing games here. This is not tiddlywinks. We're, this, is, this isn't just some schoolyard discussion, Lord. What, 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 what is in the balance here is eternity. It's, it's souls. It's, it's <laughs> and, and Lord, we're, we're completely dependent on you to, to save us. We're completely dependent on Jesus to, to die for our sins, to, to rescue us from captivity. People in this room, Lord, the that don't know you, the message is not improve yourself. The message is look away from yourself and look to Jesus. And, and even Christians, even Christians in this room who have been freed, Lord, we're so prone to go back to the dog's vomit. We're so prone. We're so prone to return to the chains that bound us. And for some reason, we walk back into prison cells and shackle ourselves again. Lord, would you, would you, would you, would you, would you, would you, do what only you can do this morning by your spirit for, for the good of your people and for the glory of your name as we come around this table. Lord, Lord, Lord with April 2nd, 2017, would, would this be a day that spiritually many in this room would mark and say, that, that's the day that the Lord freed me of that. I've been a Christian for a long time, but that's the day. That's the day that finally I stopped putting those chains around my wrists again. Finally, that's the day that the Lord did that thing in me. And, and Lord, would there be some in this room who don't know you that today, Lord, you would command what you will and that you would grant what you command, that you would give the gift of faith and repentance and that today they would be given a new heart so that they can turn from sin's tyranny and turn towards faith in Jesus. Lord, today, today, today is the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.